You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is made possible by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're encouraging you to always be in the front seat when it comes to your money. Discover how at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. It's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. Welcome to Back to School Season, which for so many high school seniors around the country, and I should point out their parents, it's also college application season. And I am feeling like I have gotten off so easy the past couple of years, but my next-door neighbor is in the throes of college applications and so many other people that I know and love. And so to help you, to help your loved ones, to help everybody sort of get through this confusing and stressful and expensive process, we called in one of the country's leading experts. We're with Dr. Kat Cohen. She is an independent university admissions counselor, founder, and CEO of Ivy Wise. You have probably seen her on the Today Show. That's where I first met her. And she's the best-selling author of The Truth About Getting In and what may be one of the best book titles ever, Rock Hard Apps. How did you think (laughs) of that? And welcome. Thanks for having me, Jean. Thank you for being here. Let's just start with getting into the minds of high school seniors and their parents right now. I mean, this is such an emotional time. All my thoughts are negative. Well, I think if students and as, and if the people listening to this are preparing for this process early enough, then it should be actually exciting right now. And when we start working with students, we start as early as ninth grade, actually, because it's all about making sure that their whole high school process is the best it can be, that they make the most of high school. And if they've done that, they'll ultimately become the best college applicants they can be. And they should have, by now, these rising seniors research their schools, put together a good list, a balanced list of schools, of reach schools, target schools, and likely schools. And they should have visited them or explored them certainly online so they know what they're getting into. Um, And if they're preparing, the common application, which a lot of students fill out for the colleges, um, was released on August 1st. So this time right now, this back-to-school time, is incredibly busy. And if they started early enough with those applications, they should be ready to go back for senior year and have their ducks in a row. Let's take a step back then. If you start working with kids in ninth grade, what do parents and children of those ages need to know to be eventually ready to write the best possible application? Well, they have to go about their high school process with purpose. And if there's one word that your listeners could take away from today, it's impact. What kind of impact are they making in the classroom? What kind of an impact are they making in their high school community? And what kind of an impact are they making in the community at large? And that's something that colleges are going to be looking at. So they want to make sure that they're going into high school, taking the courses that are appropriate for them, but also challenging themselves. Colleges like to see kids who 
challenge themselves uh, with their academics. So how can they go above and beyond in those few areas of interest or talents that they have? And we say to students, you know, you don't have to get straight A's and everything, and you don't have to take AP everything, right? But let's say you're really great at math and science, then you want to make sure that you're taking the hardest level courses and that you're going above and beyond what's offered to you to really show that commitment to these interests. And that can go outside the classroom. It could go to auditing online classes or taking college level courses in the summertime. It could be doing lab work in the summertime or independent research. So there's a lot of things that students can be doing to really show those interests through high school. Is it better to have one or two consistent areas of interest or just to be Marsha Brady and sign up for every single club? (laughs) Well, I always tell students, you don't want to be a jack of all trades, master of none, or what I like to call a serial joiner, because then you look like you're all over the place. You can't be an expert at everything. And colleges today are not exactly looking for well-rounded students. And I think that's what we think or when we grew up, you know, it was about being a well-rounded student. They're looking to create a student body that's well-rounded. So a well-rounded student body made of specialists. So the thing that high school students need to do in the beginning of high school is figure out what are my true interests? What are my talents? And then just pursue a few things Be committed to those things and dive deeply into them. Show responsibility. uh, Show leadership in those things. That's going to be make more of an impression on a college admissions officer than if you've just dabbled and gone from club to club or maybe you only spent half an hour a week doing something or you started something in ninth grade and then you stopped. I mean, those things, uh, it's very hard for a college admissions officer to place that student in an incoming class if they're not certain exactly where they fit in. You mentioned safety schools, reach schools, and target target schools. schools. Those are the ones in the middle. So when you're crafting a list of colleges to apply to, how do you figure out where you are and how many of each do you need? Well, that's a great question because today students are applying to more schools than they did, let's say, 10 years ago. On average, our students are applying to about 10 to 15 schools, which is a, a lot. lot. Um, so it, it really depends on the individual student how that's broken up, but you want to make sure that the list is balanced enough, that there's enough schools in each category where you know that you are going to get into a college or a few colleges on your list. Um, And you shouldn't expect to get into every single college on your list either. Um, The way we do it is we look at the incoming middle 50% of a class of the previous class at that college. Colleges publish data, like they'll publish their, um, uh, you know, the middle SAT scores or ACT scores, they're looking at are the students, are the majority of students in the top 5% of the class, top 10% of the class. Um, So we can generally understand where a student falls based on their academic profile, but there's lots of other things to consider. So colleges are looking at the demographics of the student. I'm working with a student right now who's a double first-generation student, and that student's going to be affirmed in the process. They're looking at so many different factors. Uh, where's the student coming from? I mean, these, I got into college on the West Virginia card, no question. <laughs> Seriously, I was one of two kids from West Virginia in my whole college class. I mean, I knew that that had to help me. It, it, I'm sure it did. And today, 
the colleges are so savvy about where students are, and they're recruiting not only all over the U.S., they're recruiting all over the world in places that they never used to go to 10 years ago. So an applicant today is competing with a global applicant pool, and you don't know who's in that applicant pool, and they're trying to create a diverse class. Um, And sometimes you could be qualified for that school, academically, everything. You could have everything, and you still might not get in. And the hard thing is for students not to take it too personally. It's just because they have a a limited number of spots at that school, and they're trying to place each of the students, and they need their football players and their physicists, and, you know, their students from Jordan and Brazil and here and there. They're looking at everything, and they're looking at socioeconomic diversity and uh, diversity of beliefs, everything, and they're trying to put that all together. When we talk and we do a lot about the cost of college on this show, it's gotten so expensive. And one of the pieces of advice that I've heard is that you should really try to, if if financial aid is something that you're looking for, try to find a school that really wants you because the likelihood that you will get more in the form of scholarships and grants that don't have to be repaid is greater. How do you find those schools? Well, we advise students who are looking for for aid to make sure that they have a balanced list in terms of finances, too, because sometimes the high-ticket schools that have a high price actually will give you more aid. So you don't want to just dismiss a school because of the price tag. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you might need to have a school that's more local or a state school or a community school that you know you, that you can't afford on that list, again, as the backup financial safety. Um, we also advise students there's ways of making college less expensive. You could, the more AP tests you take, this is one of the little tricks, the more AP tests you take in high school, if you're scoring fours or fives on them, you oftentimes, at most schools, will get that credit. Mm-hmm. So for under $1,000, you could get a year of college credit in theory because depending on how many AP classes you take, or you could take college classes in the summertime and cut down the amount of time that you actually spend at college. So you could try to do college in three years. We've had students do that, and it's a really smart way of taking the whole price down, right, by taking it down by 25%. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk to you about bringing down the cost of the application process and the testing. But before we get there, I just want to remind everybody, Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. No matter what stage of life you're in, whether you are a parent with a kid applying to school for the first time or you're applying yourself, it is vital for all women to be actively engaged in our finances and our investments before it becomes a necessity. So know what you own, know what you owe, know what your goals are, and have a financial checkup at least once a year. That's being in your financial front seat. And you can learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are very happy to be talking with Dr. Kat Cohen, founder and CEO of Ivy Wise. So I sent, as you know, two kids to college and between visiting those schools and test prep and taking the test, it cost thousands of dollars. And I found this study, there was a white paper that was just released from the National Bureau of Economic Research. It just showed up in my email this week. And it it showed data from 
millions of SAT takers and showed that only about half retake the exam. Yes. And it's the lower income students mm-hmm. that are retaking it less often because they can't afford, afford it. So what ways are there for bringing down the cost of the process? Well, um, so you brought up a great study, and I, I read that as well. And I think it is important for students to, when they go in the first time to take the test, to be prepared. So whatever that preparation is, whatever you can afford, even if it's buying a book at the bookstore, there's free test prep on Khan Academy, which is great for students to use. So there there are ways of finding inexpensive or free test prep. But I always tell students, take as many practice exams as you can before going in for the real thing so you don't have to go in multiple times and take it. So that's, you know, definitely a, a great tip for those kids. As far as the other costs, you're, you're right. And I think what parents forget about is they start saving for college for their kids when their kids are in diapers. Mm-hmm. And they forget about the cost of actually applying to college, of going on the visits, of taking all the standardized tests, of the standardized test prep, if maybe they want to do private tutoring or whatever, by the time they get to high school, those costs, they haven't set aside any money for that. So what we tell parents is start saving early on because, yes, you're going to have those extra costs. If you're going through, for example, the visiting process, there are ways to lower those costs. So you want to look at any kind of deals that are out there for prospective students. So sometimes, you know, like a a train service will have a special deal, or you could actually call the school and see if you can spend the night with a current freshman instead of staying at a hotel. That's another way of, you know, bringing the cost down. And the whole family doesn't have to go. Exactly. The whole family doesn't have to go. You could probably, you know, organize it with a friend. Again, if you're old enough and depending where you're going and how far you're going, um, or maybe there's only one parent who takes a couple of kids. And I encourage students to visit the schools that they're serious about because the schools will take those kids more seriously if they make the effort to go visit. But if it really is cost prohibitive, you can always call the school um, and even with the test prep and everything, because there are fee waivers for these tests if you don't, if you if your family doesn't make a certain amount of income. But if you're in that situation, you could call the school and they will oftentimes find a way to help you visit that school. And I think just showing that effort to the school shows that you want them. And colleges want kids who want them, right? They want the high yield. So already that's going to help you get into the school. Explain that term, high yield. Okay. So yield is colleges ultimately want low admit rates. So low admission rates, meaning they want the number of students that they admit, according to their whole applicant pool, to be very low, right? Because that gives them more selectivity, right? The lower the admit rate, you know, if you're under 5%, like Stanford, you tend to go up in these rankings, on the rankings list. But they want a high yield, meaning that the number of offers that they give out there, the number of students they say, yes, we want you, they want the highest percentage of those students to say yes back to them. And you would think at schools like Harvard, for example, some people think, oh, they must have 100% yield. They don't. Their yield is in the low 80s. So every school is worried about yield. They want to know that those kids are coming. And and, and that to, is that why early admission has just skyrocketed? Well, early admission is extremely popular, and it depends. There's so many different ways of applying early because some schools have restrictive early action, single-choice early action, uh, 
plain early action, there's, then there's early decision and early decision one and early decision two, probably too long to get into right now. But um, you definitely get a boost in the admissions process if you're applying early decision because you're committing to the school early. And again, that's going to help that school with its yield. One question for you before we wrap this up on the FAFSA. Uh-huh. So the free application for federal student aid now comes out October 1st instead of at the beginning of the year. And and the idea is that students will be able to get a better sense of the real cost of going to school before they accept. Is that working? Um, Well, we'll see what happens with this year. But I think each school, you know, puts on their—they have a— um, an estimated family contribution on their website. Like you can kind of figure out what the costs might be. And the other thing you could do when you're applying is call the school directly and speak to them about your situation because we've also found that students, so domestic students, they can reapply for aid every year because your situation might change sure. every year. And that's something that should be a conversation with the school. And ultimately, if you've done your research well and you have a really great balance list, as we've talked about, and you have multiple offers on the table come April, you can play certain offers off of each other. So you could go to school A and say, maybe that's your top choice school, but they didn't give you as much money as school B. And you could say, look, school B gave me this amount of money. Can you match it? And let me explain a little bit more in depth my family situation. So we've seen students actually get higher offers at the end of the day. So when they have been selected, the ball's in their court. And that's what students need to remember. They've got some power in this process. Once they've been identified as, yes, when the college says, we want you, they have a lot more power than they think. Love that message. Dr. Kat Cohen, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jean. And we'll be right back. Kelly Hultgren has joined me in the studio, our producer, Kelly. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I am just fine. I can't believe we're already at this point in the year. I know, middle of September. And I rode the train in this morning with a woman who like me, has a daughter who is in her last year of college, but also has one where she's applying this oh, year. okay. And it, it's a—I wrote my last college check. Like, I actually—I mean, maybe there will be grad school, mm-hmm. but—and and we'll see about contributions for that, but I wrote my last college check. How did it feel? Amazing. Right. Amazing. Um, and scary. Mm-hmm. And— just, I can't believe. I mean, I couldn't believe it when Jake graduated, but I really can't believe that Julie's going to graduate. I can't believe when you told me you were taking her to Syracuse for her last year that she's going to be a senior. She's a senior. I'm so excited to see what she does after college, but I can't believe this is her last year. I know. Me too. And we hope employment will be in the cards. <laughs> she's like you, of course. She's going to work. She's already been working. <laughs> she has. Yeah. I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm definitely kidding. All right. What do we have? Questions. Our first question this week is from Aaron. I have a question about how to overcome the wealth disparity between married and singles, even more so single women. I live in Denver. I've had a rough few years income-wise. This has impacted my credit, late payments, student loans, deferred, and lengthening my loan. I now have a job I love. I invest in a brokerage account, Roth, and 401k, but I feel like I never make enough as a single woman to save for an emergency fund, retirement, pay off debt, and buy a house in the near future. It sounds like all the things that she feels like it's easier to do when you have two streams of income. 
coming and I, in. I think there is a lot of validity to that. There are things, but there are also things that I've seen you do as a single woman that enable you to have more discretionary income. And I'm thinking mostly of living with a roommate. Yes. Right? I mean, big time. When we talk about the big gap between married and single, the biggest of those gaps is having to pay for double the space, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Or the, you know, not sharing a kitchen, not sharing a bathroom. Not that you have to share a bathroom with a roommate. I know there are two bedroom, two bath apartments, yes. but you know, a change like that could free up some discretionary income which could allow you to save for all of these things. Mm-hmm. The other thing I want to suggest, because it does sound like you are sucking away a huge amount of money, is that maybe you're putting too much into retirement. I know those are words you never thought you would hear me say. I know. But maybe you thought maybe you're putting too much into retirement and not putting enough toward your more immediate goals. Mm -hmm. And so... Take a look at your numbers and see where you are. Maybe you're oversaving. You can take a little bit off the table. Make sure you're, you know, doing enough for retirement that with the matching dollars will get you to your goals, but will enable you to do all of these things as well. And you shouldn't expect that you'll be able to do all of them simultaneously. Rank order them. Figure out, all right, do I really want the house? Mm -hmm. When do I really want the house? Is debt repayment something where if I got through that, then, oh my gosh, I would have a boatload of discretionary income that I could put to these other goals. I know you work at a brokerage firm, but sometimes people who work at financial institutions still need the help of financial advisors. So find one, call one. You probably have one sitting at the next desk. Yeah, and that's my girlfriends and I talk about that a lot. I have some girlfriends in financial services and finance as well. And just because they work in those industries doesn't mean they know how to do or apply what they do to their own money. It's like giving relationship advice. Like sometimes we could be the best advice givers, yet when applying it to ourselves, totally miss the mark. Yeah. I mean, I've said this many times, but I have an advisor because Mm -hmm. sometimes you need that view from outside yourself. Yep. Okay. Thank you, Erin, for writing in. Thanks, Erin. Good luck. Next one from Patty. My husband and I recently applied for a HELOC. We just received a statement about our credit scores and something called a bankruptcy score. I'm happy to report my credit score is 837. However, I've never heard of a bankruptcy score. Can you explain this number? Mine is 827. I think a bankruptcy score, although I've never heard of it either, sounds like a twist on a credit score. How likely are you to file bankruptcy? Clearly not very, (laughs) right? If you had a bankruptcy either in your past or in your future, your credit score would be significantly lower than that. A couple of things about this score, I would probably just ignore it. And if somebody's asking you to pay for it, I definitely would not do that. Yeah, that sounds like a scam. And one from Jill. I subscribe to This Week in Your Wallet, which for those of you listening who don't know, that is Jean's weekly newsletter. It's her take on each week's money headlines. It goes out every Tuesday. And you can sign up at jeanchatsky.com. You can. And she appreciates the sound, practical financial information it's offering. Thank you. She writes, this week my daughter turned 18 and thinking it may be a good idea for her to get a credit card and begin building some credit. She is responsible with her finances and a conservative spender, wondering if you have guidance on a young person applying for a credit card. 
So if she tries to apply for a credit card on her own with no income, the chances that she gets one are not especially great. There may be a place or two where she could slide through, but um, under the provisions of the CARD Act, which rewrote the laws as far as credit cards and a few years back, you're not supposed to be able to get one until you're 21 or you have an income of your own. That said, I do think building credit at this age is a pretty good idea, especially if you've got a kid who's responsible. The way we did it and the way I think you might want to do it is by adding her to one of your cards as an authorized user. Call the credit card company. Make sure that it will report on her behalf because they don't all do it. American Express does. That's the one that we used when we were trying to build credit for our son. And you can set a separate spending limit for her on her card. You can ask her to repay you for that amount of money, or you can just make it her allowance, however you decide to go about it. But the upshot is within a few years, she'll have a nice credit history because she will have been piggybacking off of yours. And when she does have an income, she should be able to get a card on her own. Great. Thank you for writing in, Jill, and everyone. And you can ask us your questions also at jeanchatsky.com. Great. Thanks, everybody. And starting this week, we are going to try a little something different every once in a while. We have a wonderful team of reporters and writers, and they come up with such amazing information that I have decided it is a shame not to be bringing it to you more regularly. So I want to introduce you to Catherine Tuggle. She has been on my team now for about six months. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jean. It's great to be here. It's nice to have you. Tell everybody a little bit about your background so they know you can tell Catherine's from the South. <laughs> but beyond that, what do we need to know about you? If we were drinking wine, you would be able to tell I was from the South much quicker. If I was um, drinking wine, that's when my <laughs> that's when my West Virginia comes out. There we go. Yeah, uh, personal finance has been a passion of mine since I started my career 13 years ago. Uh, I've enjoyed writing about the topic for Fast Company, Fox Business, and The Street, among others. I grew up in rural Alabama near Birmingham, and I come from a family of savers. Uh, we grew our own food on my family's farm. I did not know that. Yep. And my mom taught me how to navigate a thrift store like a pro from a very early age. Uh, so I'm thrilled to be helping folks gain a better understanding of how they can make their money work for them. Great. Well, thanks. Um, you did a wonderful piece for NBCNews.com, and it was about the topic of pet insurance, which is one of those things I did not buy for Teddy, but I've always, I mean, since he got too old to really buy it, I've regretted it because taking a dog these days to the vet is so expensive and a cat too. I am I am not a cat person, but and don't hate me for not being a cat person. I'm allergic. But I wanted to talk about pet insurance. So tell us a little bit about what it is and whether it's worth it. The short answer is yes, absolutely it's worth it. If you can get a policy, do it. Unfortunately, you can't get pet insurance if your animal has a pre-existing condition. Uh, so it's recommended that you take out a policy while there's still a puppy or a kitten. And this may go against what you're thinking, that you'll get insurance once they're older and they need it more. But it's best to get it early, and that way you're covered for life, including if your puppy decides to eat your remote control, for example. I have a, a cousin whose dog eats, I mean, socks 
and and the the things they find in that dog's poop are are outrageous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How how much do these policies cost, and is there any sort of a catch that we need to watch out for? Uh, pet insurance policies generally range in price from twenty five a month to forty five a month, depending on your pet's breed, the age of the dog, and where you live. They're standard accident illness policies that cover a wide range of things, from hip replacements to nasal surgery to cancer. The catch is that pet insurance does not cover routine wellness visits or dental care. Oh, my God. Dental care is so expensive. It is. It is. But these will help with the major unplanned catastrophes uh, and the big medical expenses that could deplete your bank account. So I'm sure we've all heard stories about people whose cats are on dialysis or whose dogs are getting chemo. It will cover them for this, right? Yes, if you get it before they have those conditions. If you've got a pet with a pre-existing condition, what are you supposed to do at that point? Right. Well, there are a few things that you can do that every pet parent should do, even if they do have insurance. Um, and that includes having a savings account. The worst thing that you can do is put yourself in a position where you have to do either put your bills on a credit card or make the decision to euthanize your animal because you can't afford it. Yeah. Um, Heartbreaking. Yes. And just be responsible. You know, animal proofing your house is a lot like child proofing your house. Make sure that they can't fall off of any high surfaces or swallow anything that's going to hurt them. And keep them indoors because most of the catastrophic accidents that the pet insurance companies I spoke with encountered were because the pets were out of doors, left to roam alone, got hit by a car, got mauled by another animal. Great information, Catherine. Thanks. What are you reporting on now that we'll hear about next? Millennials and their savings habits. Cool. Can't wait. (laughs) Catherine Tuggle, thanks so much. Thanks, Jean. And thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Dr. Kat Cohen for the wonderful information and the great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We'd like to hear what you're thinking. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we'll be back with Sprout Pharmaceuticals CEO Cindy Eckert, who sold her company for a billion dollars and bought it back almost for free. We'll talk soon.